And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. John Dowd, who recently resigned as the president's lawyer, was very worried still, not because he thinks that Donald Trump, his client, will be charged with a crime, but fears that going into an interview is unwise for the president. Well, again, John, uh, there has been no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russians, Trump and Russians, no collusion. But bottom line, they all say there's no collusion. And there is no collusion. It's been determined that there is no collusion. When they have no collusion, and nobody's found any collusion, I can only say this, there was absolutely no collusion. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the man who sucks and is a racist. Okay, my tribute to Jacob Weisberg's fun intro is kind of thin these days because Trump has just become deeply not fun lately. So today we're talking impeachment, but not, oh, it's imminent and he's going to hashtag die in jail, but a more measured conversation with everybody's favorite impeachment defense attorney, Ross Garber. Now, I know we usually stick with the prosecutors on Trumpcast, but let me say a word in defense of the defense. Trump's impeachment defense lawyer is not Rudolph Giuliani. His lawyer right now is Emmett T. Flood. Giuliani is a carny showman. Flood is a Solomonic man of the law. And here's why. A lawyer who defends public officials during impeachments, like my guest Ross Garber or like Emmett T. Flood, is not a rich and flashy private attorney to the man in power, someone paid to get him exonerated. An impeachment lawyer considers his client not the president, but the office of the presidency. An impeachment lawyer is paid as a government employee, meaning not well, and also meaning he works for us, concerned citizens, voters. Why would we want this White House to have even one defender? Well, because all concerned citizens have a stake in the stability of our government, which includes, yes, the executive branch. If we burn down the White House in trying to burn up the president for his crimes or his policies, it's the American people who, in the long term, pay the price. Now, the occasion for today's show is the unsealing of a document not about Trump, but about another Republican president who ran into a special prosecutor, Richard Nixon. The 1974 document recently unsealed is generally called a roadmap, and it's not a narrative. It's a measured tally of the evidence in the Watergate investigation, which at that time was overseen by Leon Jaworski. As a roadmap, this document, as both The Washington Post and Fox News agree, might be a template for Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor, if he were to submit a report to the judiciary, to the Congress, or to the public. Jaworski's roadmap, which is technically authored by the Watergate grand jury who are recommending indictment of Nixon, can be read online for Watergate and presidential prosecution buffs, and an acute analysis can be found on the Lawfare blog by Trumpcast's friends, Benjamin Wittes and Jack Goldsmith. There are links to that in the show notes. But I want to give you just one prose sample from the roadmap before we get to Ross Garber. It's just a list of evidentiary exhibits submitted to the House Judiciary. So here's one sample. One, on or about March 16th, 1973, 
E. Howard Hunt, E. Howard Hunt, had a meeting with Paul O'Brien during which Hunt demanded approximately $120,000 and asked O'Brien to tell John Dean that Hunt had done some seamy things for the White House and for John Ehrlichman, and that if Hunt were not paid soon, Hunt would have to, quote, review his options. No editorial, no kind of wincing at the name Howard Hunt, just the facts submitted to the House Judiciary Committee, and we know what that committee decided. Joining me on the line is Ross Garber, CNN analyst and professor of political investigations and impeachment law at Tulane Law School. The New York Times calls him arguably the nation's leading impeachment lawyer. I won't argue with that one. Welcome, Ross. It is great to be here. So, um, as you know, we have mostly prosecutors on Trumpcast. Everybody likes a little prosecutorial overreach when we're talking about Donald Trump and speculation. I don't hold it against you. But you are the rare thing, in fact, the potentially unique thing where you've made your career as the nation's leading impeachment defense lawyer. Let's just summarize what it possibly means. I mean, are you like someone who works? You've been someone who works like once in a blue moon because they're not impeachments every day. Yeah, no, that's true. So, in in fact, impeachments are incredibly rare. I mean, as you know, we've never removed a president. We've only had two impeachments of presidents in, in, you know, the entire U.S. history, the last one being Clinton. And also, even impeachments on the state level are rare. I mean, there have only been 15 governors impeached and only nine removed. But there actually have been impeachment proceedings of governors since Clinton. There there have been a few of them, and I am usually the defense lawyer in those cases. So I usually represent the governors and the offices of the governor in defending impeachments. How do you stake yourself in that? Because I get the prosecutor, the Ken Starr types, the Robert Mueller types, sort of licking their chops for rogue presidents or governors. But you've told me that you are very staked in the office, that it is it is quite dangerous to remove willy nilly a governor, much less a president. Yeah, so and that's exactly right. So I represent the institutional interests of the office, which are sometimes different than the interests of the individual. So, you know, the individual is getting impeached wants to keep their position, wants to keep their reputation. The office of the person who's being impeached has sort of a separate stake. You know, the way impeachments work are it's really the legislative branch, and in the case of a president or a governor, kind of against the executive branch. It's contest of the powers of the legislature, Congress, versus the powers of the presidency. And so in those situations, I represent the interests of the executive branch. And it you know, raises a whole host of issues like you know, executive privilege, like attorney-client privilege for public officials, separation and balance of powers. You know, mm-hmm. even what impeachment proceedings, you know, the, the procedures are, because the Constitution doesn't, you know, other than saying the House of Representatives has jurisdiction to impeach, and the Senate has jurisdiction to to try, there really isn't that much about the procedure. So all of those things matter, not just to the individual, 
but also to the institution. And that's where I come in. So I want to talk a little bit about the, our two modern era impeachments or moves toward presidential impeachment. One of them, of course, is Clinton, who you mentioned, and the other one is Richard Nixon. So Nixon is in the news today again because the report of Leon Jaworski, the special prosecutor in that case, so the, the Mueller of Nixon times, the report that he more or less authored, the report that's been under seal since 1974, was unsealed this month and then surfaced yesterday. And it is a very interesting piece of rhetoric. I've been poring over it, and I think you have too. People refer to it colloquially not as the Jaworski report, like the Star Report that could be circulated and become a bestseller, but rather the roadmap. And there's something, as Ben Wittes at Lawfare and others have pointed out, very spare about it. What did you make of it? Yeah, no, it, it, it's incredibly spare. And and, and yeah, it, it's it's interesting reading for the substance. And, and and I also teach a class at Tulane Law School on, on impeachments and political investigations. So the the substance of it is interesting. But probably, you know, as you're suggesting, to me, the tone of it is actually more interesting because yeah. we don't have very many experiences with with impeachments. You know, there isn't that much to go on. But we have these two modern era impeachment efforts. We've got Watergate and we've got Clinton. And as as I'm sure you know, some of uh, your listeners remember, in Clinton, there was that Star report. It was this you know massive piece of advocacy. You know, Star went to Congress with all of this information and made strong arguments that the president committed crimes and should therefore be impeached for them. And it was you know sort of scandalous in in some of its its prose. It kind of read in some ways like a dimester novel. By contrast, this Jaworski report is very, very, you know, it's just the facts. It's boom, 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 boom. No argument, no judgments, nothing like that. What's the use of doing that? Because one of the things that the lawfare guys point out is in a heated moment, a partisan moment, like during the Clinton presidency, you can see why People like Ken Starr and uh, now Justice Brett Kavanaugh, moment of silence, um, yeah. <laughs> took this took this hacky Fox News potboiler tone to the Star Report. We're we're accustomed now to people talking like that. I mean, Ken Starr, for his sins, like sparked this particular way of talking that's so polemical, so much torque on it, so many prurient details. You can see how weird stuff like pedogate almost grows out of the heavy breathing tone of the star report what was effective about that it certainly riled people up and added fuel to the fire of now our you know what have become our current straits in our divided country yeah i mean you know, a report like that is dropped on congress and it puts congress in this position where it's so explosive and so detailed in the media understandably reports on it and, and, and talks about what it says, puts Congress in this weird position where it's hard, it's almost hard not to impeach. And just backing up for a second, as, as you and I have talked about Virginia, for Starr, there's actually a statute that required him to bring any credible information supporting impeachment to Congress. For Jaworski and Watergate, and now for Mueller, there is no statute like that. 
Uh, there was no provision for Jaworski, and there is no provision for Mueller to take what he has and and bring it to Congress. And in fact, you know that's not how the system generally works. Usually, prosecutors and grand juries they investigate crimes and then they indict. And if there's an indictment, then that becomes public. If there's not, the whole thing goes away. So this notion in the first place of having prosecutors and grand juries do an investigation and then transmit the results to the legislative branch of government is really extraordinary. And Jaworski, for the, he was the first one to think about and have to think about whether to do that and then how to do it. So before this provision that allowed Ken Starr to issue this report and make it public, things were very, or at least Jaworski made the decision to play his cards close to his chest and allow the grand jury to author its own document, this roadmap, and then present it to Congress for their decisions. Now, we know in retrospect, the grand grand jury, some of them wanted to indict. They thought indictment was the proper move. How did Jaworski sort of massage this thing to make this much cleaner, more minimalist document and get the grand jury to put their name on it? Yeah, and and I I give Jaworski a lot of credit. So, yeah, here's Jaworski. He's done this investigation. He's found what he believes to be crimes that the president of the United States has committed. And some of his prosecutors say, look, the president committed crimes. You got to indict. And you're right. The report is that some of the grand jurors said, yeah, these crimes, you have to indict the president for crimes. Jaworski made the decision that the president couldn't be indicted you know, for these obstruction of justice crimes. The president couldn't, couldn't be indicted. But here he was. He's sitting on this pile of evidence that the president has committed crimes. And meanwhile, you know, across town, Congress is doing an impeachment investigation, and they don't have this information. And so Jaworski had to sort of figure out what to do. And he came up with this idea of transmitting the information to Congress, getting it to Congress. And then the question became, all right, so what form does that take? And he decided that the, that it should not be a piece of advocacy, that the decision whether to impeach a president, that was left to Congress, but that what he could do is provide the information that he was sitting on. And so and that's essentially he, 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 evidentiary he, exhibits. I mean, it's, it's yeah. Yes. So he he identified a bunch, uh, you know, a bunch of information that he thought supported the indictment of of the president, pulled all that stuff out of all the uh, of all the information the grand jury collected. You know, he labeled it all as exhibits. And then he prepared this summary, which is referred to as the roadmap, uh, which, again, just, you know, fact, 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 identify, sort of explaining what the exhibits are. And what do you do you find? Do you see any thumb on the scale in this Jaworski prose. I mean, if you were going to guess, does he think this is so exculpatory that there might be an indictment here? I mean, sometimes the facts just spell out the extent of the crime. My bias, the, the way I look at things is uh, the more you yell and scream and exaggerate, the less I think you have there. Uh, mm. And the quiet, more quietly you talk, and the more you just rely on facts, the more compelling I think it is. And I think that was sort of my read of what Jaworski, you know, put together in this roadmap. 
it comes across to me because of its fairness as a very compelling piece, uh, albeit subtle, of advocacy that the president had engaged in uh, improper and otherwise criminal conduct. What stands out to you? The secret payments? The, what, are, what are the things in, in the list of exhibits that stand out to you as especially devastating? So, look, it, it, to me, it all looks very ugly. You know, but, but one of the things that I've, uh, I've always paid, paid special attention to is the role of lawyers hmm. in these types of issues. And when you think about it, it's, an, it's not a great history. One could argue that, that other than Richard Nixon, John Dean was perhaps the person most responsible for Watergate because he was the White House counsel. He was the one who could have and actually should have stopped it. And so one of the things I find very interesting about this roadmap is it does sort of go through the interactions between the president and John Dean and touch on John Dean's role in, in, in the Watergate scandal and how Clinton you know, sort of used John Dean. Um, is uh, yeah. Well, say a little more about that because naturally you're going to be looking to for the the government side or the executive branch side lawyers. So John Dean's the White House counsel. He is supposed to be representing the presidency, and the president brings him in, and the president's people bring him in, and essentially have him orchestrate part of the cover up, and, and then the president sort of tries to make John Dean part of the cover story by having John Dean do a an investigation report kind of clearing the president in all of this. And so, you know, the notion that, the, that a White House counsel is involved in a conspiracy to cover up crimes is extraordinary. And, and I think, you know, the roadmap touches on, uh, on, on some of Dean's actions. You know, part of the theme, I think, of this particular show is the return of the repressed. We've had probably more talk about Watergate um, since the 70s. Now it seems to be haunting us more than ever, partly because some precedents were set and partly because it ended in the resignation of the president, which it seems that some of us dearly hope for. But um, one of the weird things is that figures, including actual John Dean, are opining about the current president. I mean, you must, as like as an aspi- aspiring young law student thinking toward political investigations and impeachment law, w- kind of wished that you could have daily conversations with John Dean. Do you two ever mix it up on Twitter? Uh, do you do you go over some of these details? I mean, do, am I alone in finding this a totally fascinating time? Sometimes there's a collision on Twitter that I, I just, that I can't believe. I think John Dean started following me. I mean, I was a child and he was like, a I don't know. He was, he was, um, you know, in some pantheon of thinking about Nixon times and, and there he is tweeting. Yeah. And I'm surprised that he and I haven't run into each other, you know, given the circles we travel in, but also, you know, we are both CNN. Uh, we both yeah. work for CNN. At some point, I do hope to be able to talk to him. I read his 
his autobiography. Yes. You know, when, when I was in law school and for any, you know, any of your listeners who are government lawyers, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's very, very, very good in that it talks about the perils of, of getting into situations that you're just not prepared for and making sort of the, the weak decision, an easy decision and the consequences it can have. It's, it's called blind ambition. I recommend it highly. But then after I started doing this work, people started giving me copies of that book. And now I, I probably give that book away more than, than any other book. Every time I see him uh, on TV or, or elsewhere, I have this reaction of, on the one hand, it is interesting what he has to say. On the other hand, he is sort of the poster child for, not sort of, he is the poster child for how he not to do that job, how not to mm-hmm. represent mm-hmm. public officials, how not to be a public official. And, and so his perspective is, is kind of interesting to me. He reminds me a little bit of just the moral agony that is expressed by these anonymous senior government officials who are always, you know, who spouted off in Bob Woodward's book or who, um, you know, wrote the op-ed in The Times. You know, that's gotten a little bit lost, but it is really crazy that, you know, it seems like there's a crew of John Dean-style officials that Trump has lost interest in but are still around him trying to kind of wrestle him to the ground and also leaking. I'm left with the impression of all these individuals in a moral situation that no human has found themselves in at these high levels with a president who seems manifestly unfit, according to by their definitions and in public, and then where it also seems to have policy implications and also and implications for the judiciary. And I mean, you know, when you wonder how did Leon Jaworski make his decisions, how did John Dean make his decisions, they had to wing it. You know, it's it's something about the rareness of impeachments that seems to put a lot of stress on these individuals because the institutions are just not there. You reach for them to tell you what to do. And you're dealing with provisions and statutes and customs and norms, but nothing that that lets this be a nation of laws and not men in the moment. Well, that's that I think winds up being the biggest issue because, uh, you know, all of the things you identified are sort of theoretical. But what what's also there in the real world is ego. You know, people get into these positions, they have egos and often that gets in the way. You know, when I've studied, you know, all of these prior impeachments and, you know, lots of the cases I have, not just impeachments, but, I, you know, I do a lot of political cases. You know, it's often the egos that cause, you know, significant problems. And I, I do sort of wonder, you know, with John Dean, whether if he had said to Nixon, hey, Mr. President, you know what? Uh, no, this is not OK. We cannot do this. Whether actually he could have put a stop to a lot of the misconduct, I think there's a you know there is a chance that that he could because every day in you know government all over the place you've got advisors who are speaking truth to power. I'm sure it's happening in the Trump administration, mm-hmm. and so you know we we know things that we've seen that you know perhaps you know we disagreed with and think you know, are bad. What we don't see are the situations where advisors say, hey, you know what, Mr. President, that, you can't do that. That can't happen. Yeah. And the president listens to him. 
Yeah, I mean, more often they seem to be sort of like Rudolph Giuliani, pit bulls for the egos of their client. Um, they amplify it. They go, I think Giuliani's recently been in Ukraine. I don't know if he's generating support or making money for the president or just doing some of his consulting gigs, but that doesn't look good. And that that leads me to question about the difference between a Giuliani who's very much representing Trump in the media. I mean, he's almost like a flack for, a, you know, a PR person for him as much as a lawyer. And then someone we've talked about before and been very uh, find very interesting, Emmett Flood, who stays completely out of the spotlight. I think some people even forget that he took over for for Ty Cobb as as Trump's as doing Trump's impeachment defense. He's worked on impeachments before. Tell me about the difference between their two roles, because Flood strikes me as a principled lawyer. He's quite accomplished, erudite guy who has a great stake in the executive branch and in peaceful and orderly uh, preservation of every branch of government, where Giuliani seems to be doing his best to fan the flames of of Trumpism and create distractions and so forth. So what are their two roles? Because I think people see them both as Trump's lawyers, and they seem yeah. to be, to me, doing very different things. Yeah, no, no, they, they, they have different jobs. And, you know, at the beginning, we talked about sort of my usual role representing the institution uh, as distinct from representing the individual. You know, that's a play here, too. So, you know, Rudy Giuliani, he represents Trump personally. You know, he's, as you can see from his advocacy, he's talking about Trump's, you know, political standing and his position and all of that. He's representing Trump personally. On the other hand, you have Emmett Flood, who right now is actually acting White House counsel until the new guy takes over. That's right. Yes. And, and his, his job is to represent the institution of the presidency. And Emmett Flood is different than John Dean. John Dean, you know, got into the office. He wasn't prepared for what he, he was getting into. Emmett Flood is a very smart guy. He's experienced. He worked on the, uh, on the Clinton impeachment. And he, he has done a lot of thinking about these kinds of issues. And so, you know, he will, he will be there to represent the, the executive branch. And, you know, which is not to say that, you know, you'll, you'll always agree with him probably either, because, you know, particularly if there's an impeachment, that really is a clash between the executive branch and the legislative branch and sort of a, a tussle for power. Um, but yeah, I would expect Emmett Flood to keep a, a lower profile, certainly than Rudy Giuliani, and, and also be sort of thoughtful uh, and, and principled in, in his approach. I just want to put in a small plug for the liberal arts because Flood, and this always interests me, has a PhD in, uh, I think, philosophy. He you know, had a, a Mellon Foundation fellowship. I, I know this seems far afield. His colloquium was called Some Uses of Narrative in the History of Philosophy, Synoptic Judgment and Philosophical Plot. And if anyone thinks that's irrelevant, I think it ha it bears on his job in two ways. One of them is this is philosophically very difficult for people. I mean, in John Dean's book, you see a man wrestling with moral questions who may have made some bad decisions. You see this also in Jim Comey's book, A Higher Loyalty, that, it, you know, 
it, they're very earnest reflections on what's right, what is right in their roles, and how can they put aside a ego and short-term gains and a desire for to be visible and to stay relevant? How can they put those aside? So philosophy is a pretty good background for someone like Emmett Flood. Then the other part of this is, and this gets us both to the Nixon roadmap and also the Mueller, would-be Mueller report, some uses of narrative in the history of philosophy. So he's talking about philosophical plot. Both of these documents, three documents, the hypothetical Mueller report, the Jaworski report, the roadmap, and then in, then in the middle of the Star report, all of them are, in some sense, narrative documents meant to inform decisions about the most important question of our time. Is it off the president to be president be removed or have his authority impeached so he can be removed? And that is, I think, does get us into the rhetoric of these documents. What do you think any kind of Mueller report might look like? So obviously, it's all speculative. But the thing I think is interesting about it is that I would be shocked if a Mueller report looks anything like a star report. If we see something from Mueller, I think it will be more sort of just the facts. And and one of the things that I've, I've thought a bunch about and will find fascinating is how something like that will play in this era of such inflamed, over-the-top rhetoric, which in many cases in politics, isn't fact-based at all. And, and I think if I were representing the president, it's one of the things I would be very concerned about is that whether it's a Mueller report or whether you know it's you know a next indictment or something like that, it is very likely to be both factual and then supported by evidence, which in the end is likely to be, I think, still, even today, much more compelling than than sort of hollow rhetoric. But, you know, it, it will be interesting to see how that how that all plays out. What kind of defense might Flood be currently mounting? I know you were a little bit in touch with Ty Cobb. I don't know how explicit the conversation was, but what kind of defense might he be mounting now and what might he be preparing for in the form of some kind of Mueller report? I would expect that Emmett Flood is looking at the, the myriad issues of executive power that, uh, that may come up from uh, executive privilege to the waiver of executive privilege to pardon power to, it's interesting we're talking about the, the roadmap, Nixon didn't object to the roadmap being transmitted by the court to Congress, I would expect the current president to object uh, to that kind of transmission, because normally that's not how, and, and under the rules, that's not what a grand jury does. So I think, that, I think those are some of the issues that, uh, that I would expect and that Flood is, is looking at closely. The proceduralism of uh, Nixon times really is astonishing to see even Nixon's deference to institutions and precedent. So, you know, some people 
say he would have. I mean, he didn't deny, deny, deny. He didn't do the Trump moves or even he didn't express. Well, yes. I mean, for instance, yes, the, the vilification, say, of Jaworski in the press didn't happen. It's hard to imagine Nixon for all his penchant for dirty tricks, sicking some kind of Jacob Wall figure to try to claim that Leon Jaworski, you know, had me too problems. Like it looks like um, Jacob Wall and some other tricksters have done with Bob Mueller, the FBI now investigating that. I mean, these are these crazy distractions that for all we think of Watergate as this tormented time, it is pretty amazing how professional everyone ends up acting. Yeah, well, you know, Nixon was a Nixon was a career politician. Uh, you know, he he'd been a governor and a vice president. He he was very invested in the institutions of government, and yes, he pushed the envelope and, and pushed beyond the envelope. But he sort of operated within sort of established concepts of those institutions of government. But yeah, I mean, it, it, there were things that he didn't do. He he had advisors, I think. Including Pat Buchanan coming to him and urging him to burn the Watergate tapes, even after mm. the Supreme Court said he had to turn them over, he didn't do that. He sort of sized up and in a kind of politically sophisticated way uh, what his future and his legacy and and what it would do to the institutions of government if he took certain actions. And ultimately, he made the calculation to to not try to even withstand a Senate trial because he was going to get impeached and instead uh, probably for everything he's going to just resign. Again, yeah, we're, we are living in a, in a, in a different era now where I think a lot of us have seen some political figures sort of push past the envelope and, and, and other political figures sort of shrug. And so this, this could be it. And I think likely will be a very interesting time. So certainly some of us live in those times and and but there is a sense that there are people like you, possibly Emmett Flood, possibly Robert Mueller, who are at least mindful of other norms and 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 regulations and also. What decisions we make now, what consequences they might have for for the fabric of our of our government in the future. So this is where I want to return to, I just want to be sure listeners really understand that you as an impeachment lawyer, your client is the office of of the presidency or the governor, and your investment is in the stability of the executive branch. So I don't know if you can tell, but I'm teeing up a question that I think I've asked you before and, and seems to sound far-fetched to most people. But is it possible that someone like Flood with his his PhD in philosophy, that he might want to defend the executive branch against the current head of it, defend the White House against Donald Trump. It's a challenge that sometimes government lawyers have. They have a a responsibility to the public, to the people. They swear an oath to uphold the Constitution. Sometimes it is the case that their principal, person who's representing their client, and in this case it would be the, the president, is, in their opinion, doing something that is contrary to the interests of the public, or contrary to the Constitution. And, and that puts the lawyer in a very 
a challenging spot where there are potentially two options. One is you persuade your client to do the right thing. And, and honestly, that's what usually happens. If a, if a lawyer has done his or her homework and has the courage to speak truth to power, usually that is what happens is they're able to convince their client. The other alternative is to resign. And mm. that is a real alternative, but it's, it's also, and honestly, it's, it's not one that I've ever had to, to employ. Um, You're talking that's about a real the, What's that? For the, for the lawyer to, to resign, like, like Dowd did yeah. or Cobb. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not, you know, without commenting on, on whether that was the reason why those guys resigned. But yeah, is, you know, if you've got a client who's not just doing something with which you disagree, but doing something that you believe is unlawful or improper, then the lawyer's in a position where he or she has to say, you know, I can't facilitate it. It's, by the way, it's, you know, bringing us back to the beginning. That's what John Dean should have done in Watergate and didn't. Robert Mueller. So we have the voice of Robert Mueller, not on CNN or Fox or MSNBC, but only in the indictments that that he's issued, especially the ones signed that he alone signs, the IRA indictments, the Gru indictments. What do you make of his reticence? What do you make of his style? What do you make of it as a as a prosecution, as what looks like collectively in the indictments, a prosecution. I'm not sure there's a, another word other than impressive that I, I think adequately sums it up. And and I look not just to what's in the indictments, but also what's not either in the indictments or out in public. I don't think I've seen a an investigation or a prosecution that has leaked less or grandstanded less. The restraint uh, has has been amazing. You know, compare it to even sort of, you know, regular political investigations and prosecutions. Normally what you'll have are, you know, leaks throughout the investigation and so that the press is full of leaks, you know, coming out of the government. And then when there are indictments, you'll see the, you know, the big press conference where the prosecutor is there kind of telling the narrative story in very judgmental terms. You mm-hmm. know, but contrast that with here, you know, you see no leaks coming out of, out of Mueller. In fact, it, you know, I, I think what we've been surprised about is that we're usually surprised when there are indictments. And then mm-hmm. you see indictments that are not incendiary in their rhetoric. And then you see press conferences where it's not Mueller, but it's Rod Rosenstein standing up and Kind of, again, kind of giving just the facts, and then not taking it, not taking questions, and walking off. It's what prosecutors are supposed to do: is make their cases and prove them or not in court. It helps when they're not running for DA at the same time. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I wonder if Mueller has to res- has to hold back some of his more public histrionic prosecutors in the office. You know, we certainly got the blow by blow on on Enron and other cases that uh, that Andres and Weissman have prosecuted, yeah. the mob prosecutions. It really is interesting to have these two types with 
competing philosophies, Mueller and Weissman, maybe, maybe, you know, you and Giuliani or Flood and Giuliani, if people want to play the press and the public versus people whose whose faith in institutions stands. Um, I, I, we've had Ali, I, I want to let you go, but we've had Ali Honig on the show, who is a pro, you know, former prosecutor. He teaches at Rutgers. He says students are signing up in droves to be federal prosecutors or at least very interested in what a prosecution looks like. And, you know, I have to say, we've certainly favored that prosecutorial voice on Trumpcast. Um, now, you teach investigations and impeachment law at, at Tulane. Are you seeing the same thing with with uh, with people eager to conduct defenses against political investigations and possible no, impeachments? I, <laughs> yes. And it, uh, no, I, I, I see uh, I, I, I see a, a pretty hard kind of prosecutorial, you know, tilt in in my process, too. Uh, yeah. Interesting. And, yeah. And, and you know, I, I try to, you know, as I tell them, I try to, you know, play it you know, very straight in class and make sure they also understand. Uh, and, and it's the same thing I, I try to do on CNN and, and, and with you. You know, they see both sides, you know, the prosecutorial side, but then also the defense side, because, you know, often what the prosecutors have on, on their side are, you know, facts, you know, yeah. egregious facts, right, often. Whereas as, as a defense lawyer, I'm often talking about process and procedure, uh, which you know, might be, you know, a little bit less compelling sometimes. But I I think what's going to be most interesting about this upcoming chapter will be some of the processes and, and procedures. You know, I think, I think one of the places to look next really will be what kind of battle happens over what the public gets to know about what Mueller has, has found out. I think that's going to be, that's going to be fascinating, at least as fascinating as what the public and Congress do about it. Ross, I, I just want to thank you one more time for sort of setting me straight on how the people and uh, as concerned citizens ought to have a stake in in the executive branch and in, in, the, in the orders and procedures of government every bit as much as our politics and our continued outrage at this president. Yours has been such a, a good and I think unique voice in public conversation about this. And I, I'm just grateful to you. So thank you very much for being here again. No, no, I, lo- I love the podcast and uh, I'm happy to be on whenever. That's it for today's show. So what do you think? I know you may have loved the ads if you listen to this on Free Slate, but imagine getting Trumpcast and all your favorite Slate shows ad free. What a world that would be, right? Well, it's possible when you visit slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and sign up for a membership which has so many privileges, you won't believe it. Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Feel morally superior to your Slate-free friends. Our show today was produced by A.C. Valdez with help from Shirley Chan. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.